Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. Sure, sure, we're all dealing with supply chain issues right now on everything from appliances to cereal. But one thing we are not in short supply of is amazing Canadian women from coast to coast to coast. And this week's lineup is stellar. I rarely get nervous interviewing someone, but when you speak with a Canadian broadcast legend, you can't help but get a little flustered. Valerie Pringle, the former host of Canada AM, is now working tirelessly behind the scenes to raise awareness for the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health Foundation, and candidly shares some details of her own experience helping her three children with their mental health struggles. Plus, some tips for parents going through the same in their homes right now. Anne Brody is back with more entertainment this week as Omicron leaves us few options outside the home for entertainment. You will definitely want to sink your teeth into Shonda Rhimes' latest on Netflix called Inventing Anna. This 10-part miniseries stars the incredible Julia Garner from Ozark in the lead as Anna Delvey, who committed massive fraud pretending to be a mysterious German Harris. This based on a true story series is just the escape we all need right now. The need for women in politics is clear, but the barriers to entry are high, as Glennis Radcliffe found out when she considered throwing her hat in the ring for the upcoming provincial election in Ontario. Glynis shares some of the hurdles she faced, why she had to pause, and some thoughts on making a path into politics more equitable. After almost two years in isolation together, couples are noticing a lot of things about each other, including the division of labor in the home. So when is it problematic? When it's weaponized incompetence. Lisa Sani, a life and relationship coach who helps clients of all walks of life overcome challenges stemming from traumatic or abusive partnerships, joins me to help us define the term, recognize it, and get it out of our lives. Are you looking to upgrade your skills for the job market? Then you will definitely want to stick around to listen to my interview with Nancy Baker from Fort Erie International Academy. She has details to share on 10 courses being offered to the public for absolutely free right now to help upgrade technology skills. Finally, Ontario has passed right to disconnect legislation that takes effect June 2nd this year. Well, it's most certainly welcome, especially for those seeking work-life balance after two years in this pandemic, my final guest today says that so far it appears to be largely a political move that doesn't carry a lot of substance or direction with it. Deborah Hudson, an employment lawyer from Hudson Sinclair LLP, joins me to share what employers and employees need to know right now about Right to Disconnect. It's another full week at what she said with the interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 105.9 The Region. Taste so bitter and it tastes so sweet. 
My first guest today is a broadcasting legend and a mental health advocate. Valerie Pringle, the former host of Canada AM, recently shared her personal struggles with Aiden Wall on Canadian Jewish TV, which airs Saturdays at 10 p.m. on Omni. In the interview, Valerie shares her struggles with her daughter, Catherine, and how it often left her feeling inept and helpless. It's a sentiment many mothers across Canada can relate to right now, especially after two years in a pandemic. Valerie, who is also chair of the foundation board of the Center for Addiction and Mental Health Foundation, joins me now to discuss. So welcome to the show, Valerie. Hey, Candice. It's such a pleasure to have you join me. Um, I'm a little bit nervous. I may fumble over my words. Uh, I do want to ask you, do you feel that the conversation in and around mental health has been normalized a little bit because of the pandemic? Yes. And, you know, when I started doing this, I guess it was probably 15 years or so ago that I became an advocate. My husband and I were inspired by Michael Wilson to get involved with the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Uh, he was such a leader in that regard. And, you know, one of the things they asked me to do first was to do um, an awareness campaign. You know, they were trying to come out and get people to talk about mental illness. And, you know, I said, well, in my family, there's, you know, drug addiction, bipolar disorder, alcoholism, panic and anxiety, depression, you know, your average Canadian family. I've never suffered from a mental illness myself. So, you know, who to talk about? And our daughter had had real problems with anxiety and depression, especially got very bad in her early 20s um, as when she started her first job. So, and, and Catherine was very open about it. So we did this ad. Gosh, it was probably 2008. And people were coming up to us. We were giving speeches and talking about it. And man, stigma and shame were so... Uh, prevalent. And you think of the time that's changed since then, Candace, since 2008. That's a long time ago. And Bell Let's Talk and all, every celebrity movie star athlete, you know, has talked about uh, their struggles. It's so common. Um, so, and, and then COVID. So to your question, yes, it's been normalized and people are all talking about, man, it's so hard to keep spirits up and, and get through this. And your heart goes out to kids at home and without their friends and their peers and, you know, all that. So it's been normalized in many ways, but I think people still don't know how to express it, don't necessarily know where to find help. And there are still communities, and I will say this, where shame is, is and stigma are still a big factor. I think what's interesting as well around the conversation of mental health is that we now have all of these so-called experts out on social media informing um, you know, wide swaths of our population uh, about mental health, but they may not necessarily be the best resource for that. Do you have an opinion on that? Well, you know, let's let's be clear. I'm not a doctor, not a psychiatrist. Um, Doctor Google can be very helpful, but but not necessarily. I mean, it, it's it's useful to you know, and we we know that you know technology is going to be a huge way forward in terms of treating people with mental illness. And I mean, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health that I've been involved with now for 15 years, um, you know, so much has gone virtual. They, the percentage 
leap in the kind of uh, treatments they're doing virtually since COVID, because they can't see everybody, is massive. And they're finding them very effective. And they're finding very effective tools of disseminating information to doctors across the province so that people in Sudbury and North Bay are getting the same kind of treatment protocols that, that people in Toronto are getting, where, where there are more doctors. So those things are very beneficial. But I don't, you know, I, I don't know in terms of somebody just going online and trying to find somebody to help them. Um, yeah, maybe yes, maybe no, because, you know, we know mental illness, you know, can be extremely serious. It can be a mortal illness. Uh, and you can't underestimate the sort of proper level of care, you know, that, that people need, especially if it's chronic or serious mental illness. In your work with CAMH, is there a lot of discussion right now around sort of the coming mental health tsunami that we keep hearing about? Oh, you know, absolutely. I mean, the campaign that that we were working on as an awareness campaign uh, just before COVID started was something that was pretty bold about suicide called Not Suicide, Not Today, to really talk about giving hope and trying to you know, just give people time. You know, everybody would say, I just, I wish I'd had a little bit more time. Suicide is is such a tough and a difficult thing. And as COVID started, we went, I don't think this campaign is, is for right now. We're talking about the spring of 2020. So we pivoted that famous word to a, a campaign called Apart Not Alone to sort of emphasize you know, that, you know, everyone's going through this and, and you don't have to be alone and, and it's tough to be alone with this. You know, we, we did subsequently move forward with not suicide, not today. And also now just this idea that there is hope. There are treatments now and research going on now that give hope to people and that, you know, research is saving lives today. Um, so, you know, it, it's a an important message to try and get out to people. You know, as we say, we're, you know, life's tough enough and enough people, you know, suffer from mental illness, but this uh, anxiety and the difficulty and the loneliness and, and other factors, trauma that are feeding into uh, what's happening with COVID are making it much worse, no question. What's interesting to me is I find that, you know, a lot of people who maybe had never experienced mental health issues prior to the pandemic found themselves under so much strain, they were dealing with those very issues. So I think empathy is now something a lot of people can uh, can use when in, in this discussion uh, around how we're going to deal with it going forward. Um, and in your work with CAMH, what are sort of the signs of hope you're seeing that give you hope that we're going to be able to to deal with this? Well, number one, you know, that I sort of just mentioned is the, is the amazing ability of, of you know, doesn't sound like maybe like virtual connections. You go, oh, great. That's all I need is another Zoom call. You know, however, that ability to connect with that many more people, we know they're not enough psychiatrists and doctors. If, if you go to smaller communities, I mean, my daughter and I used to do speeches a lot to schools and school boards, and you'd see the parents coming toward the stage at the end of our talks and with the sort of brimmy eyes, and you know, you, you knew how worried they were and how desperate, you know, to get help and to find help. You know, I would say the governments are now taking this way more seriously. We're seeing a little bit more money put toward this, but mental health is still absolutely the poor cousin to physical health. And people still do not see that mental health is health and it's equal in its uh, urgency and important 
to uh, to physical health. So the technology thing and being able to reach out is is causing enormous amounts of hope. And the research that's going on, the brain really is this you know frontier right now. You know, with neurologists and neuroscientists and and the data, the, the people connecting data. The, this is how we are going to solve this conundrum question: What's going on in a brain? Because it is all synapses and, and things going on in the brain. People will say, well, is it biological or is it psychological? And you're going, it, it's all biological. We just, we can see tumors and we can see places where Alzheimer's are. We just can't see mental illness yet, but we will, we will. So you're not only though involved with, with, with CAMH, but you're also a parent who has been through this. So for parents who are listening right now, because I know so many are dealing with this, what is there any words of advice or encouragement you would give them right now if they're dealing with this at home? Well, I would say, you know, like all three of our kids, you know, Catherine and I have talked about this more and given speeches, but I have two boys as well who would say absolutely anxiety has been an issue and one with depression as well. And, you know, there's there's just nothing worse. There's nothing more upsetting as a parent to deal with a kid and see that, what's that line, you're only as happy as your least happy child, you've got a depressed kid. Now, you know, a couple of things I would say, you know, this was not chronic, serious mental illness. Um, you know, there are lots of kinds of mental illness, you know, if, if it's schizophrenia, if it's bipolar disorder, there are things that are, you know, you really got a, addictions, you know, getting getting the right help and doctor. But in our, in our case with depression and anxiety, Catherine was prescribed uh, any uh, depressant, which she was not keen to take because she thought, you know, oh, it's going to mess me up. Well, she's been on that antidepressant for decades now. She's just had her third kid. She's got a great job. There's hope. I mean, this kid would be sobbing through exams. Finally, by the time, as I say, I was one of these parents who kept going, oh, she's just got nerves. She'll get better. We'll just get her through it. Finally, she's in a ball on her bed, rigid body, sobbing. I'm going, finally, it took me to get through my head, a good parent. Um, this kid's sick and suffering and she's needing help. So, you know, we she cognitive behavior therapy was very helpful to her. The antidepressants have been uh, helpful to her. My son didn't want antidepressants, but he's done therapy. And um, so those things, you know, again, sometimes waiting lists, sometimes they're not paid for by the government. These are all serious issues. Um, but there's hope, you know, there's a trajectory of life. And I would say for my kids, luckily, you know, the intervention and the, and the help that they got really did make a difference in their lives. And, you know, they live with it and they're, they've thrived beyond that. But had they been ignored or buried... Um, which a lot of people do, like, eh, it's not real, it'll get better, they'll grow out of it, you know, those kind of attitudes. No, absolutely not. You don't want to overreact, but you do not want to underreact. All right. So if people want to find out more then and learn more about CAMH, where can they go? Um, CAMH.ca. It's, you know, sort of one of the great centers for mental health and addiction in the world. It's a major research center. Obviously, I'm raising money for them all the time and supporting what they do. Uh, but CAMH.ca is a good place to start if people have questions. All right. Probably a better place to go first before you go to TikTok. So CAMH.ca <laughs> and Valerie, thank you very much for joining me today. It was an absolute delight having you on the show. Cheers.
More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Joining me now for another Saturday Night at the Movies is Anne Brody. And Anne had to dig deep again this week to find us some good entertainment, but she did come up with something pretty juicy. So, Anne, tell us about Inventing Anna. Oh, it is so good. If you're going to watch anything for fun and mystery and shock value, like a sort of elevated soap opera, Inventing Anna is the one. Julia Garner, who's a terrific actress who you know from Ozarks, plays the mysterious, real-life German heiress, mysterious, and nobody really knows who she is. She has a very strange accent. She blows into New York in 2013 and builds relationships with uh, high society and celebrities. So she says her father's a billionaire and he's supporting her, and people tend to buy her things and pay her way for everything. And it turns out, that after five years of doing this and receiving all these benefits, she's a total fraud. <laughs> it's the most hilarious thing. This is a true life story. And she, she, one of the great things that she did is she went to visit a friend in Ibiza on a yacht. Well, they all left the yacht. And then she and her boyfriend turned around and went back and lived on it. And then she was found out. She's just the most outrageous person. So she winds up in prison and a reporter wants to do an in-depth story on her and finds how difficult and how vicious and cunning she is. What a remarkable woman. Anyway, she served time in prison. She's out now. Nobody's any the wiser as to who she is. Absolutely fantastic. Inventing Anna. So we don't know where this woman came from? Nope. All we know is she was born in Russia and she wound up, she claims to be German, but she wound up in uh, New York. My suspicion is that she wanted to hide her very humble roots out in the country in Siberia or Oblastat or whatever. Um, And of course, she had no father who was wealthy. So who was this woman with, may I say it, balls of steel? Incredible. I guess so. Yeah. And you know what? I This is the perfect entertainment as we as we battle the Omicron blues here and we're stuck back in lockdown. So I love it. Um, also up uh, this week is um, Alyssa Milano, who I haven't seen in anything in a while. And she's in a show called The Teacher. No, she's in Brazen. Or no, that's she's a different one. And I think you haven't seen her. Brazen. Brazen yes. on um, Netflix. Also on Netflix. And she's been behind the scenes. She's been an activist, an anti-Trump activist for two years now. She's attended a lot of hearings and served on various committees. So she's back in the game under Canadian director Monica Mitchell in Brazen. She plays Grace, who's a world-renowned mystery writer. Uh, her, her sister calls her from far away to say, come, come to me. I need your help. She goes over, finds her sister dead and begins an investigation. Turns out the sister is a web artist, or so they call themselves, called Desiree, a dominatrix. And so it's a, and oddly enough, a very handsome detective lives next door. And somehow 
she wangles her way into what a coincidence right yeah and she wangles her way into the into the investigation <laughs> it is so hilarious it's funny but i'd love to watch her she's a good actress and she's she doesn't have anything phony about her you know i really admire what she's been doing lately and so even just for that, just watch Brazen. It's, it's kind of fun. Do you have anything, anything else for us that uh, you want to tell us this week? I do. On Super Channel Fuse, and I'll be quick, uh, the British limited series, A Teacher, is about um, a woman played uh, by Sheridan Smith, who's a fantastic actress, accused by one of her students, 15-year-old students, of, of seducing him. Well, this kind of mirrors an big important storyline on Coronation Street these days about a teacher allegedly sexually abusing a student. And I'm wondering if there was a, a news case in England that must have started this trend. But um, this series is, is worth watching just for Sheridan Smith. She is a total chameleon and she's got a great body of work. Amazing woman. So there you go. All right. Well, there's it's something, Anne. I mean, we have, we need something to keep us busy as we're stuck in our houses again. Uh, so I am looking forward to watching Inventa, Inventing Anna. I always love those shows that, you know, uh, are based on true stories. I know. It's incredible. And then when you finish watching it, you, co you can watch the documentary on her on HBO. It's not as much fun as this one, though. <laughs> so this will blow your mind. All right. All right. So you'll be back next week. I hope that the week in entertainment gets better for you because I know that you you look for the best for us. So we'll see you next week and we'll uh, we'll look forward to what you have. Thanks, Anne. Bye, Candace. We need more women in politics, and despite the fact that we've known this for years, women represent only 35% of all legislators in Canada and remain underrepresented at all levels of government. Increasing our representation in electoral politics is essential because it can lead to greater gender equality and to better social, economic, and political outcomes for all Canadians. My next guest is a former opera singer turned journalist and content marketing writer. Glynis Ratcliffe's writing can be found in the Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, The Walrus, and Today's Parent Magazine, to name a few. She joins me today to discuss the barriers to entry for women who are thinking about entering the political arena. Welcome to the show, Glynis. Hi, thanks for having me. So you were thinking about throwing your hat into the political ring this year, uh, but you have paused due to a variety of factors. So let's start there. Uh, what hurdles did you find? There were so many. Um, part of it was simply the amount of time necessary to devote to um, campaigning within the party. You need to actually campaign to be voted to run for the party. So it's not as simple. I had no idea until I um, stepped into this, but um, there, it's not just a matter of signing up and filling out all of the forms and then um, running with it. You need to be approved by the party. They need to vet you in terms of social media, in terms of jobs, um, 
police records, all of that stuff, which is fine. <laughs> I mean, if you have any sort of um, social media presence, it's um, it's a massive <laughs> undertaking for them to um, to look into you. And so, even just from that point. I, um, it was overwhelming. And the amount of time that I would have needed to fill out the, the forms just for the one party that I was um, planning to get into, and they were very, very supportive of me. Um, it was overwhelming, absolutely overwhelming. So when you were thinking about entering, was there a place you went to look like that line, sorry, that laid out sort of all of the steps to enter? Or did were you having to figure this out sort of on your own as you went? Initially, when I connected with the membership leader within the party that I was planning to join um, or to run for, we had a back and forth conversation um, with by email. And then we talked on the phone just to sort of talk through what was necessary. It's not as simple as um, looking on their website. And finding out all the answers, you really have to reach out um, actively and um, and speak with members of the party that um, are in charge of these sorts of things. And then you will get an email or um, like a, a PDF of all of the things that need to be filled out. And they sort of walk you through it, but you're mostly on your own. <laughs> <laughs> So you almost need a team uh, ready to go before you even enter. You do. You absolutely do. Because um, the, I, I needed a um, financial officer to run within the party. <laughs> and I was at that point, I sort of went, I know I, I, I can't do this because I just I had planned on throwing my hat in the ring and seeing whether this is something, whether the party would support me if I moved forward, but to have a team behind me to even step up to the plate was more than I realized I needed. And that requires a financial outlay uh, likely too, because you have to pay people, right? So I, I totally get that. Yeah. But what are we losing? I mean, you write about this a lot. What are we losing uh, when we don't have women in politics? You know, I think we lose um, an essential point of view that is that is much more socially focused, whether that means from a family standpoint and the supports that are needed um, for children or for spouses as they face challenges, um, but also just in terms of a more holistic way of thinking. It's not po politics. There are so many men in politics who are groomed from a very young age to go into politics, and it's it's their path. I mean, we have quite a few. <laughs> we have quite a few that are generational currently in power, and and there are so few women in that same situation, and and the life experience of women that that they can bring to the table is, is just infinitely more um, three-dimensional, I guess, <laughs> compared to the men who are brought in. 
Well, I think this is a conversation we're going to continue uh, because I, it's so important. I think after two years in this pandemic, especially, women are tired, we're worn out. We are seeing the inequities for not just women, but Indigenous people in this country, uh, people of color, uh, marginalized groups of, of all kinds. Um, so I think we're all a little ready for change. So I'm going to do everything I can to amplify this conversation and keep it going. I know you are as well. Where can people connect with you online um, and find your writing? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm on Twitter at Glynis Ratcliffe. And that is kind of where I get my most political. So I would say if you want to connect with me there, um, my DMs are open and I'm happy to interact there. Um I am also, my website is glennisratcliffe.com and uh, Instagram is just at Glynis. And um, stay tuned because I think there are some things brewing uh, in terms of getting women motivated to make change happen from within the system rather than outside of it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me today, Glynis. Thank you so much. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. I give you my hours and advice just trying to fix you and all your daddy issues but now I don't even miss you anymore. So my next guest is a life and relationship coach who helps clients of all walks of life overcome challenges stemming from traumatic and or abusive partnerships. One of the topics she focuses on is weaponized incompetence, a term we are hearing more and more of as the pandemic rages on and women are reevaluating what's happening in their own home. Lisa Sunny is joining me now to help us define the term, recognize it, and get it out of our lives. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Thanks so much for having me. Why do you think we're talking about weaponized incompetence so much now? I definitely think it has uh, huge connections to everybody being cooped up at home and in, in the pandemic. I also think it hugely relates to having TikTok, having these amazing little short snippet of videos where people are talking about it and potentially obsessively uh, researching topics that they can relate to. And this is something that almost every married woman can relate to, even the ones who are in happy relationships. It's not, uh, it's not something that, that women don't understand. All right. Well, let's first define it then. So how do you define weaponized incompetence? So it's, it's very important to, to first start with the definition. So it's a great question because first and foremost, it's not a difference in standards. It's not a lack of communication. What it is, is when one partner is feigning their incompetence for the specific purpose of having their partner complete the task or do the task altogether. So there's an intention behind it. When we talk about weaponized incompetence, it's important to note that a person can't weaponize their incompetence if they actually truly did not know how you wanted the task done. So when the term is used, we need to first know that that conversation has taken place probably more than once but that that conversation has taken place. So let's let's just back up a little bit. We had a little bit of a conversation before this, this interview. So let's use an example in the house then, a common example uh, for people so that they understand that they've defined it, but then their partner's not following through. 
So my favorite example is doing the dishes because that's something that has to get done, you know, pretty much every day. But again, the standard is, are we doing it every day, twice a week, five times a week, whatever, right after we eat later. So dishes is a great example. And I like to say for me personally, dishes means wash, dry, put away. Even if you have a dishwasher, it means load it, unload it, put it away. And so that could be a difference in standards. And so you assume now we've been married or and or we live together. So we've had the conversation that I mean, wash, dry, put away. And when I make these examples, people say things like, well, that's a difference in standards because maybe they just want to leave the, the dishes in the drying rack and they'll put it away later. Yes, that's a difference in standards. What isn't is when it is being left in the drying rack because he knows you will put it away later. He will not come back to put it away because the whole point of leaving it there was for you to do it instead. So the intention is what we need to focus on, not the method, not the standard of how they get dried. So I'm laughing a little bit because honestly, this sounds a little bit like my teenagers. So do teenagers weaponize incompetence as well? They absolutely do. And I will raise my hand as a guilty party. So um, I absolutely did when I was a teenager. And I, the example that my mother would probably laugh that I would use is that I ate a lot of cereal and I would always leave my cereal bowl either on the counter or in the sink, knowing the dishwasher was either empty or dirty and had room. But even further than that, maybe the dishwasher was clean and full and I could have put it away for her to participate. But I knew that leaving it by the sink to quote unquote do later, I knew that my preference was really that she would just do it for me. I really hoped that she would do it and that I didn't actually have to do it just to take that one extra step because I honestly don't think I respected her enough to just participate with this bare minimum basic task of just being in a family. And so I, I do think a lot of teenagers do it and they can grow up and continue or they can grow up and stop. I think it, it depends. I think gender plays a big part in it. That said, women can weaponize incompetence, um, but it, statistically speaking, it is more men. And we could give teenagers a pass, you know, they, ha they don't have that fully developed prefrontal cortex yet. So we can give them a little bit of a pass. But when you're in a marriage adult relationship, then that's when it becomes concerning. So we recognize it. What do we do about it? How do we address it? So I'm, a, you know, a, a, an advocate for calling it out in, a, in an appropriate way, in a kind way. I think where, where women struggle often is in when they bring it up they are shut down by being called a nag or distracting from being distracted from the conversation insofar as, you know, that's a difference in standards because you care that the dishes are put away. He doesn't. Okay, so let's use that. He doesn't care if the dishes are put away and you do. Does he care about you? Because it matters to you. It's a sign of respect, not power, not control. It's a sign of respect that you know that this matters. Um, and, and moving to another example, even in terms of laundry, you know, wash, dry, put away. Maybe he's OK that his laundry sits in a basket unfolded and he'll just take his clothes out and wear them. That would be a difference in standards. But the men who more often than not are weaponizing incompetence are the same ones that expect their clothes to eventually magically appear into their closet and or drawers. And there is an expectation that the clothes be put away by someone else. More often than not, these men 
took care of themselves prior to marriage. You know, this idea that you should have asked before you got married or this is why you should have lived together. This is why you should have had a minimum standard of care conversation. In our defense, sometimes these conversations don't take place because we are witnessing a man take care of himself when you visit his apartment and it's clean. And then you get married and you think, oh, he was cleaning his own apartment. And more often than not, they are cleaning their own apartment um, and or they care that it's clean. So when they get married, now there's this view, oh, I'm married now, now you'll clean it. And that's that's where the incompetence comes in. You know how to do dishes. You know how to fold laundry. You, I, I'm not better at folding laundry than anyone. Is there a difference then, because we, we discussed this a little bit as well, like, is there a difference between, you know, feigning helplessness and weaponized incompetence? Yes. So I believe that more, that the, the women who are using weaponized incompetence, and women do use it, and it's just weaponized incompetence, no excuses. But I think often it's also performative helplessness, that sort of like, babe, can you help me open this pickle jar? Babe, can you, you know, do this man job? Can you take the, the trash out? You're able, but you're sort of like, oh, I can't, you know, is that abuse? I don't see that as abuse as much as I see that as trying to, I don't know, make your man feel strong or useful or sort of manipulating him into actually doing things like, babe, can you please take the garbage out for me? It's so heavy or so smelly and sort of in this like, I'm a woman role to get him to do a man job. Are you, you know, I'm quoting man job. Um, are you, are you doing that? to be abusive or are you trying to sort of just get him to help because you've tried just asking outright and it's not working? Um, so I think performative helplessness isn't quite weaponized incompetence. There's a connection. Um, both are not good. I'm, I'm personally more a fan of being direct, but I also understand where women, when you're direct, you're a nag or controlling. And so you're just trying everything. You're like throwing it at the wall, seeing what sticks. So not it's not ne it's not necessarily true that if your partner is weaponizing incompetence that is that mean you're in an abusive relationship does it mean you're in a toxic relationship is it possible that you're in a healthy relationship with a little bit of weaponized incompetence what does that what is it a signal of if that's sort of in your household um i would view that as toxic or abusive and or abusive if that makes sense so i don't i don't think that i think that people can employ weaponized incompetence and, and not really know, really, you know, like it's on a subconscious level. I think that that part matters. But the intention is still, I'm even subconsciously just going to leave this because as, you know, the example of being a teenager, I don't think I really outwardly thought I want her to do this for me. It was just kind of the subconscious hope that it would, the bowl would just put itself away. I didn't really care if it was her or magic. It just, it wasn't me. And that was the point. So I, you know, I'll, I'll, I forgive myself and we forgive teenagers for various reasons. But as an adult, you're weaponizing incompetence to get your partner to do it for you. That is manipulation and manipulation is abusive. Can they change? Can they do better? Can that marriage survive? The answer is yes, because if that man is willing to hear what she's saying and hear the explanation and understand, like, I really need more of a partnership and I need to not have to ask you. I need to not be the one managing the list. Now, it's either a physical list or a mental list. But regardless, women seem to have this mental load of the dishes need to be done. The laundry needs to get done. So her having to even ask is a problem in and of itself. 
a man who doesn't see those things isn't necessarily weaponizing incompetence. But if you have the conversation and he likes to wear clean clothes and he's not participating in it, then he's weaponizing incompetence to manipulate you, to get you to do the task, and he's abusing you. Okay. There may be some eyes open after this interview. Uh, I want people to be able to connect with you and follow along. I uh, I love your stuff on TikTok. Uh, so where can people connect with you? Um, the best place to connect with me is on my TikTok. So it's at stronger than before, and there's an underscore under each word. And my website is stronger than before.ca. And then also on Instagram, I can be found at stronger than before coach. So I'm in all those three places and you can get links to my my books and my courses, my webinars on the website as well. All right, Lisa, thanks so much for joining me today. This was very enlightening. Thank you. All the hours spent giving advice on how to write your songs. All you did was prove me wrong. Wish you said you loved me when you didn't have your fingers crossed. Ain't about how fast I get there. Fort Erie International Academy is a private school based in the Niagara Falls region with the mission to inspire and empower students to realize their academic potential, to become agents of change, innovators, and leaders on a global scale. With women looking to upgrade their skills and find new work roles that inspire them in 2022, now is the perfect time to learn more about their free Tech 101 courses being offered in partnership with Huawei Canada. Nancy Baker is the principal of Fort Erie International Academy. Her experience in international school management and leadership has helped bring life to Tech 101. She has played an integral role in creating Tech 101 from the very beginning and joins me now to discuss. Welcome to the show, Nancy. Thank you for having me. So I think the most important thing we need to just sort of off the top is that although you are based in Fort Erie, this program is open to anybody coast to coast, correct? Exactly. Yes. It's a free digital online course. Canadians anywhere in the country can log in and access us. And how many Canadians have taken advantage of this program so far? So far for 2021, we have over 10,000 users from coast to coast here in Canada. Wow. That's yeah, incredible. Exactly. It took off running. So tell me then about some of the courses that are offered. So some of our programs are basically the Microsoft suite, and it does very well. Microsoft Excel is extremely popular right now. Um, we typically do Zoom lessons, um, PowerPoint, all of the typical school, university, and entry-level corporate position suites that you would need to manage online. And I love that you're also offering online banking and cybersecurity. I mean, this is our future, is dealing with this stuff on a daily basis, whether for work or even in our private lives, right? So it can't hurt to have these skills. Absolutely. That wasn't necessarily something that was in the initial plan, but that was a demand that came from our clients and our students that logged in. And as we stay online and continue to move forward with the digital economy, it's it's more and more important, you know. So we are really just very proud that we can help Canadians in this way. 
And I love even that there is a Zoom course. And I mean, I'm chuckling a little bit, but how crazy is it that that became a reality? And for people who didn't actually work in that space or never really understood it, this is vital information you're offering. Yes. And we have a lot of students logging in to learn how to use Zoom, how to use Microsoft Teams, how to send professional emails. You know, a lot of young people today across Canada are very they think computer savvy, but when it comes to the tools that they need to actually be a professional and to move forward in the workplace, and with more and more jobs going online and more and more workspaces becoming remote, then there was a, you know, a need for how do I do this? How do I conduct myself professionally? How do I share my screen, for example, was a huge thing. Absolutely. So what has the feedback been then from the students that have gone through your course? It's been very positive. And they really appreciate the instructor's breadth of knowledge, the pace, the, the hour-long segments just kind of hit the right amount of time for a student to be focusing on these things. And, you know, 79% of our users have said that they've learned something new that they had never known before. 60% of our users in a survey have said that they have their confidence has been immensely impacted in using digital skills. And over 4% have secured um, a new job coming out of unemployment from these programs. Wow. And in the, considering in the current circumstances, that's phenomenal. Yeah. So obviously you had 10,000 students go through this course in 2021. Uh, do you have sort of numbers you're anticipating for 2022? We like to double it. Wow. That's a great goal. I hope we can help you get there. Part, part of, you know, not just Huawei's mandate, but as well here at, at Fort Erie International Academy, like you mentioned, we are trying to grow the next generation of innovators and leaders. So the more we can do to reach out to help Canadians, you know, our students in person are Canadian and international. And with Tech 101, we want to reach as many of those as we can. Well, I got to tell you, I have three favorite F words. One of them I can't say on the air. The other is feminism and the other is free. Yes. And I'm sure people listening to this will absolutely love that aspect of it. Absolutely. So where can they go to find out more? So they can go to uh, fia.ca slash tech 101 to learn more about the program. They can also check out our Facebook community, the Tech 101 community on Facebook. Um, we are very, very active in that Facebook community, Tech 101 community. Okay, wonderful. And I'm just curious, are, are, is there any um, discussion around expanding the number of courses you offer? We are in the process of expanding, absolutely. You can't, you can't double your users without providing more content. So we are looking at um, more programming, digital marketing, data analysis, a little bit more intermediate level courses so that the users we do have can take the next step. And for someone coming in that, okay, I know how to use Microsoft, I know how to have an online meeting, but how do I then analyze the data that's coming in from this? So we are definitely looking to expand our digital economy needs, yes. Well, I love it. And as we battle the Omicron blues stuck at home, this is the perfect time to sign up for these courses. Nancy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, and if I can just say, you know, it's always going to be free. So we'll keep your favorite F word. Um, over 60% of our instructors are female. So we'll keep your feminism F word in there. And absolutely check us out. You know, go to fia.ca slash tech 101 and let us help you get your goal. Amazing. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks. You too.
More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. With recent legislation giving employees the right to disconnect in Ontario, I thought it would be a good time to find out exactly what that means. My final guest today is an experienced labor and employment lawyer based in Toronto, Canada, who provides solutions-focused, timely, and highly specialized legal advice. Deborah Hudson joins me now to share what you need to know as as an employee and as an employer about the new right to disconnect legislation. Welcome to the show, Deborah. Thanks, Candice. So in theory, I think this is a fabulous idea. But is it translating right now? So, Candice, I agree with you. In spirit, I think the right to disconnect is a very great idea. It's important. Employers want healthy employees and employees who are engaged. Right now, the job market's actually quite competitive in a lot of areas. Employers want to retain employees and work-life balance is very important. And it's important to have boundaries now, especially that we're moving into hybrid models and working from home. So in spirit, the idea is fantastic and I'm all aboard. However, in practice, um, you know, the government um, has, uh, this legislation has come into force effective December 2nd, 2021, but it doesn't say much. Right now, all it says is employers that have more than 25 employees need to make a policy about the right to disconnect. And that's it. So, so then who defines what's a reasonable right to disconnect? Because one employer might say uh, you won't receive any emails after 11 p.m. And that could be considered a policy. Is that correct? That's correct. So right now, as it stands, the Ontario government has not, um, has not included any additional information or which they would typically do by way of an additional regulation as to what this policy might say. So to your point, it could say we won't usually contact you after 11 p.m. It could say we won't contact you between 5 p.m. and 7 a.m. I mean, who right now there's no guidelines. And, you know, it also isn't even clear who this applies to. So by way of an example, my husband owns a spa and his uh, his employees, they don't have emails. You know, they come to work and what they do is hands on work. And when they leave, they're not contacted by him. But in theory, the way this stands, if he has more than 25 employees, he still has to have a policy, which, you know, would be a burden for a spa or a restaurant or some other business that's in the service industry that this isn't even relevant to. So at this point, there's no extra information provided, which might come in the next six months. So when does, now this came into effect in January, but you were mentioning prior to the interview that it wasn't actually until June that the policies had to be in place? That's correct. So it actually came into force December 2nd, 2021. And what it says is, you know, something to the effect of if you have, you know, 25 or more employees in January, then you have to have this policy. So every year you're going to evaluate how many employees you have. So if you grow at some point and you pass 25, that's when you'll that you'll have to have it into place. But there is a six month period uh, uh, to get it, your policy into place. So as it stands right now, employers have until June 2nd, 2022 to have their policy in place. So there's a chance the government may pass a regulation between now and then uh, that gives us some details, but who knows? And so are you helping employers draft 
um, right to disconnect legislation or are you helping the employees right now sort of understand what their rights are in terms of this? So at this juncture, I've been contacted by one employer to draft a policy. And for that employer, I drafted a policy. It's very brief. Um, and it states something to the effect of, you know, we'll make reasonable efforts not to contact workers after hours. And, you know, it does have an exception for emergencies. So that's for that particular case. But I also flagged in, in that case, look, we don't have any regulations yet. So we are definitely going to need to keep our eye on the ball because if the government comes out with a regulation, we're going to need to ensure that we comply with that regulation. Okay, so if people want to know mo- more about this legislation um, and how to draft it for their own business, because it seems very vague right now, <laughs> where do they go? So at this point, because they have until June, I would actually advise employers to hold off for a few months to wait to see if the Ontario government does enact any regulations that give us more details and clarity on what the policy must provide. There's a chance they may not do that, but let's wait and see. Sometimes in the past when the Ontario government has required policies, like years ago, there was the accessibility legislation that came in around 2012, I think. And there were on the Ministry of Labor website or related websites, some templates that employers could use as well. So I would like to wait and see at least till March, April, does a regulation come out giving us more guidance on what the policy needs to include and are there any templates? And for employees, I mean, you still need to be aware there are rules around hour of work, overtime pay, you need to have certain breaks in between your work. So if you even Google Employment Standards Act Ontario hours of work, there's good website information. Make sure you're on the Ontario government website and it talks about those things. So if you're being required to work you know, 12 hours a day, you may be entitled to overtime and other breaks. So those things still do apply. Okay, that's excellent advice. Um, I think this is all sort of muddy water right now. Uh, Great idea, but maybe not the best delivery of the information to people. So uh, wait and see. And if people want to connect with you and find out more about how you can help them, where can they go? So I am a partner at Hudson Sinclair LLP. If you just Google Hudson Sinclair, you know, or Deborah Hudson Employment Lawyer, we should come up. Um, Yeah. And I mean, unfortunately, I do think that this was just a political ploy by the government to pass a bunch of policies that look good before the election, because there's nothing that the, like I said, I love the spirit of it, but there's nothing actually, there's no actual meat in there. Hopefully we get some clarification and, you know, these types of rights come into place because employers need that clarification and employees need those rights. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. That's it for What She Said for this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com. And be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to re-listen to this episode and find full details for all of today's guests. I'll be back next week with more What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.